Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the ACUI Table Talks podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Dianis Conrad. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Conrad. Oh, wait, I know you told me to call you Dianis. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before we jump into things, I'm going to read your bio, but then I want you to kind of unpack who you are for folks, because it's easy to read a bio about somebody, but when they tell their own story, it's so much more powerful. So for our listeners, uh, Dianis Conrad is a professor, she, her, or her pronouns, is a professor of equity and diversity in education at Randolph-Macon College in Virginia. Her research centers on social and educational inequalities, racial literacy, critical social justice, and the deconstruction and disruption of colonial legacies. As a qualitative researcher, she seeks to develop a deeper understanding of the effects of racialized and colonialized practices on the sociocultural and educational experiences of marginalized populations in order to improve community relationships and the educational experiences of underserved populations. Wow. Okay, so now we're going to really jump into who Diane Conrad is. Um, but before we do all that, so have you settled into your new space? You're in a new city. You're working for a new organization. Tell me how you're settling in. It is going very well. I am still unpacking. I had this uh, goal of this will be the first time in my life that I will have everything unpacked before school starts in August. And clearly that's not gonna happen this year either. So no, just sort of getting used to the area. I have a, a young son. So spending more time um, at parks and sort of getting used to what this will be like more for him than I am. But it, it's going well, everything's going well again and sort of getting used to being in the hustle and bustle of the East Coast. Fantastic. You know, I'm glad that you were able to make time for us today. Um, there's so much to unpack about your heritage, your academic career, the time you spent at your prior institution, and what prompted you to relocate and make a change. Uh, but let's start with a little bit about your background. Um, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you found yourself building out this amazing career in academia. Well, um, I'm actually an immigrant. Um, 1.5 generation, I think, uh, is, well, actually, I'm still considered second generation. My father is also an immigrant. My parents are immigrants. Um, I was born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago, which is a twin island nation off the coast of South America. And I came here um, at 19 to go to college. And uh, I had this big dream of changing the world, and I wanted to work for the UN. And um, the first sort of uh, reality hit me when I applied for college and as an immigrant, um, I was applying from overseas. So I applied for all the colleges I had heard of. I had never heard of HBCUs. I had never heard of small colleges. I only ever heard of the, the ones you see on TV. And I got accepted everywhere that I applied. I got accepted to Brown and to Johns Hopkins and all the nice places. And then realized there was no way that I was gonna be able to afford to go to any of them. And that was the first time in my life where I had sort of struggled with the reality of no matter how much promise I had that, that there was a potential that that wasn't gonna be in my future. I always sort of saw myself um, uh, going to college. My dad was the first in his family to go to college and education was really important to him. So that was always sort of my presumed path. Um, I come from a place that is very, very multi-ethnic and um, multi-religious. So we have um, all our national holidays, all the Catholic holidays, all the Hindu holidays, all the Muslim holidays are all national holidays and we all celebrate um, and sort of enjoy that. And yes, we do have our challenges, but we have a very sort of different framework, um, a different sort of history um, with that sort of uh, 
background of coming together or pushing apart um, and um, sort of realizing that there was so much difference to me when I got here um, and trying to navigate um, different things. Like I had never thought of myself, I had never identified as African-American, I never identified as Black. I identified myself as Afro-Caribbean um, or, or different terminologies, but there was this way that I came here and all of a sudden I was in these boxes. Um, and it took, it, it took most of my early 20s and I think probably into my late 20s before I started to really understand what those boxes were and how some of them may have aided me and some of them would have been holding me back and what that really meant for this new life that I was trying to build outside of my country. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting when you talk about um, being in these boxes that you're not, that you wouldn't have been in where you grew up uh, because everyone, well, I shouldn't say everyone. I've not been there, but I've studied about the country and I think it's beautiful. Um, but where more people look like you than don't look like you, and then you come to a place where that's not necessarily the case. Um, what's that like to be in a place where you're maybe one of a few versus being one of many? Well, I think that that was one of the, the greater challenges for me coming from being part of the majority to all of a sudden being minoritized and not understanding um, uh, what, that, uh, what that looked like. And prior to going back for my master's, I had no really no real understanding of of the impact of of race or of things like that i was sort of living in this um utopian bubble of just thinking that hard work like the, the bubble of meritocracy right mm. like you just work mm -hmm. really hard you'll just get whatever it is that you you work for mm -hmm. and i mm -hmm. i came to this country with that framework and um you know throughout my master's and my phd it really sort of opened up um the way that I thought and the way that all of that made sense to me. Um, and I know that I sort of got distracted on the point of your question. Can you repeat the question again? Oh, no, no, sure. You're, you're answering it. Um, like what it's like to go from being in um, a place where you're among yeah. the majority to being among the few. It was definitely um, difficult. I'm very used to it now. Um, mm, I think mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm very, I'm very used to almost comfortable in spaces where I am the only, or I am one of a few, just because I know it and it's, you know, the devil, you know, right. So yes. I know how to navigate those spaces. When I first came to the United States, I think I didn't identify because I didn't identify as black in the way that I understand it to be now. Um, I really sort of gravitated towards foreigners like I, I sort of associated with all other foreigners and I didn't really fit in I, I went to a large public institution um, where there was maybe two percent students of color um, even fewer from outside of the country and I just didn't fit in I didn't fit in with the, the white students that I met um, I didn't fit in with um, the black students that I met because I didn't understand anything <laughs> and I was just off in my own world um, and I think that was very, very difficult for me. I think my very first semester, I didn't speak to another American of any background for like a year because I got made such terrible fun of because of my accent, the way that I spoke um, in class, even the teacher laughed. Um, so I just, I was like, you know what? These people just aren't my people. I'm just gonna stick to the foreigners. They kind of get me. And I just, I literally just avoided all Americans for over a year and then I sort of, um, as I built friendships and got to know people, I started sort of um, getting out of that bubble with playing sports and, and doing different things um, on campus. But I was never 
Um, I never, I was never black enough. I was never white enough. I was never foreign enough. I was never anything enough. So I, I, I spent most of my um, young adulthood trying to fit in um, mm-hmm. and, and learning um, or mastering a skill that I learned growing up of, of code switching back and forth. And it wasn't until probably in my 30s that I, I realized the impact. I think there was a, a point in my late 20s when I realized that I hadn't listened to music from my country in a few years and I hadn't mm. spoken, I hadn't eaten food from my country in a few years. And I was sort of losing the sense of who I was and, and where I fit in. And then my late 20s, early 30s, I decided to say, you know what, I'm going to be me. And if you like me and I fit in with you, then you like me for who I am, not because of who you think I am. Um, and that attitude and that growth sort of followed me into this, my career where because of the work that I do, I find myself in a lot of spaces where very few people look like me and, uh, and sort of being confident and being able to navigate that is, is a big part of what I do. I think that's the perfect segue to talking about um, race and your experience with race in, in this country um, and how you are now in this space of what you teach um, and who you're teaching and what the experience looks like. So talk about that a little bit in terms of how have you been able to craft your career in academia with a lens on race? Well, honestly, that was not my goal. Uh, <laughs> I did not start off anywhere remotely connected to that path. Um, my first degree was in international studies and foreign languages, because as I mentioned, I wanted to go work for the UN and travel the world. Um, I ended up um, sort of after some sort of challenges personally, um, bumping into my old Spanish professor from that first degree. Um, and she was like, hey, do you ever think about doing your master's? You did a year of teaching. Why don't you go back and get your master's? And you know, I was like, eh, I've got nothing else going on. I'm tired of working, you know, working just for working. I wanted something meaningful that I could really commit to more than just clocking in and clocking out. Um, and I went back to school and I went back to school for this one and a half year of master's program, but it was a program for foreign language teaching and it focused on the social justice aspect of working with refugee and immigrant kids. Um, and it gave me insight into a different realm, a different understanding of not only education, but of US society. Um, that same person, my, my, she actually ended up being my doctoral advisor, uh, Dr. Uh, Chris Tilly Loves. And uh, yeah, she talked me into another degree after that one. Um, and uh, she allowed me to do something that I am pretty confident no other professor would have allowed me to do. She allowed me to take um, more than a third of my, course, of my courses in the sociology department, because that's where my passion really, like I wanted to understand. Uh, it wasn't just about pedagogy and curriculum for me. I wanted to know more. I wanted to, I, I felt that there were missing pieces at a much deeper level. So I spent a lot of time um, critical Africana studies, critical indigenous studies, um, social inequality classes, sort of really trying to, to shore up my understanding of a society that really perplexed me in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I actually ended up with um, a, a graduate certificate in race and social policy. Um, and again, that still wasn't my focus. When I applied for jobs out of, uh, out of um, my doctorate, I, I applied for curriculum and instruction positions, ESL, you know, that was my, that was my bread and butter, my specialty. Um, and that's what I went to South Dakota to do, was to sort of teach ESL ed um, and sort of uh, uh, work with pedagogy in that way. But then um, 
I just realized that there, again, those pieces were missing, right? If, if you're teaching a kid and only focused on their academics, then you're missing half the party. Um, you're really missing what it is that they need. I can't teach a kid and just teach, teach the academics. Like I have to understand who this person is. I mean, um, Rita Pearson, who is one of my idols now passed, you know, she specifically said that teaching is about relationships. It's mm-hmm. about building those relationships. And I can't build a relationship with you if all I care about is what your grade was in an assignment. Mm-hmm. So um, I spent uh, uh, the last six years at South Dakota sort of trying to hone um, hone my pedagogy to include those aspects so that my students see these kids, not as these foreign kids or these other kids or these people from the neighborhood, but as as valuable whole people that that deserve their full attention and their full consideration and care. It's so powerful, right? Because what you described of your own experience um, coming to this country, being an immigrant, um, kind of not even paying attention to the fact that you're not enjoying your music, uh, the music from your country, the foods from your country, and then you find yourself in this master's program, and now you're teaching kids who have uh, to focus on this same group of people that you understand so well. I think it's incredibly powerful um, to to even have that lens that says, you know what, I'm not just teaching a person. I have to know more about them. Everyone is is very layered, right? Um, the the adage that we've thrown, you know, we talk about all the time about the onion, but it's really true. We're incredibly layered people, and if you just focus on how well did you do on the grade, you know, did you get the grade? Did you not get the grade? There's so much nuance that we lose, and I think that's an incredibly powerful point. It changed my whole life in terms of how I see education and, and shifted um, the way that I, that I think. And I think, you know, I, you know, you asked about teaching about race, like even at USD, I never aimed um, to teach about race. But when I got there, um, I was the first black teacher almost all my students had. Um, uh, for many of them, I think I did a survey the first few semesters. For many of them, I was the first person of color they'd ever had a conversation with, you know, outside of like a fast food you know, pick up window. Um, they had never had conversations with Ray about race ever in their family, never in school. They had never talked about this stuff because it didn't, it didn't matter to them. It didn't exist in their world. It's like, you know, when you go into a space and everybody looks like you and everybody shares your backgrounds and experiences, um, it's really difficult to understand how hard that is to not, to not fit in in that space, to, to understand the challenges of why safe spaces are needed. In those, even if everybody's really nice and friendly, you know, why people um, who are outside of the dominant culture need to have those safe spaces of inclusion. Um, and my students just, they couldn't engage in any conversations. They couldn't engage in any meaningful conversations about US education, about the realities of US education. And they couldn't imagine teaching anyone who was not average, average intelligence, average skill, average norms. They couldn't perceive um, anything outside of that. So I felt that I had no choice um, because my job in the 16 weeks that I have a student um, at a college level student is to make sure that I get them from point A to point B. And if if they are starting, if this if I'm starting at point B, taking them to point C and they are still back there at A, then I'm just wasting my breath talking at them for 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. So I felt that I needed to go back to point A and sort of bring them to point B so we could all get to C. Um, and that was how that came in because I tried talking about race the first semester and it about blew up in my face. 
Um, I had students um, writing the N-word on course evals. Um, it was a sort of a rough moment for me. And I had actually a, a supervisor who told me that it was my responsibility because if they were using the N-word, then I wasn't building enough like connectivity between my students. It wasn't, it, they weren't actually racist. Um, mm. So I had um, sort of a very difficult transition time, but it allowed me to go back to what I know, like go back to the basics, go back to curriculum design and think about, okay, um, I use sort of backward design is what we used a lot in ESL ed was, you know, where do I want them to get to? And what are the steps I need for them? So sort of backtracking back down to point A. And I found that what they lacked was historical understanding. They didn't understand why these things were happening. They didn't understand. They had no, they never, they didn't know redlining existed. They had this vision of, of, of enslavement as um, people in long white skirts and khaki pants sort of like gathering cotton happily singing like gospel songs in the fields. They had all these, these frameworks that are created when we leave important bits out of history. Um, and I couldn't, as a teacher committed to the education of children like mine um, and children all across the country and on a global level, I couldn't let that go without doing something or saying something. When you, know, when you see something, say something. When you see something, do something. That's what social justice is all about. So um, it, I felt it sort of sat with me to, um, to, to put that content in there, to, to, to tell them what redlining looked like, to give them examples of systemic racism, to talk about um, the Jim Crow era, to talk about the realities of, of being a person of color, particularly being a person of, of Black or um, Native ancestry in, in, in those times and what that was like. And I realized that for, at, at first, I think I, I went at it with a sense of, oh my gosh, I cannot believe you guys don't know this. I'm not even from this country and I know this. Um, but then I, I realized that I had so many students who genuinely were shocked. I made them write uh, week long, every week they had to write reflections. And I had students who were generally horrified. They were like, why was I never taught this? Why did no one ever teach us about this? Um, and then talking about you know, accessing the internet in, in 2022 and how as adults, um, it is our responsibility to educate ourselves and to fill in those gaps. We can no longer blame our teachers or our parents for, for missing the boat. Now, now we are in charge and now Absolutely. we get to, to fill those gaps. So uh, it, 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 um, it was a, a matter of sort of building in that historical piece. So helping them understand why we were having this conversation and then helping them take the information so that when they leave my classroom, they can then use those skills to really think critically about the things that they encounter. Because I can't cover everything in 16 weeks, but it's about giving them the tools to when they see curriculum, when they see activities, when they hear something that they go, hey, wait a second, that I need to address that in some way. What I find so troubling as I'm, as I'm just processing everything that you're saying about these, these are college students who are missing huge chunks of U.S. history uh, and just simply not knowing that these things occurred in a, a state and a whole set of states in the South that are not that far away from South Dakota. And yeah, it's, not that it's, far away. It's amazing to me that this is a just a missing piece. And I, I feel like it gives credence to um, what the, the media and legislation has, has uh, bandied about in terms of critical race theory. Um, and I, from everything that I've read about you, um, as it relates to, to your prior post, 
Um, you were accused of, of, I'm using the word accused. I'm not saying that that's what the media said. Stacy's using the word accused. But you were accused of teaching critical race theory in a state whose governor stated, and I'm quoting the governor here, our schools should teach our children our nation's true and honest history. They should teach about our successes in establishing a country that is a beacon of freedom to the world and our mistakes along the way. Our children should not, however, be taught the false and divisive message that they are responsible for the shortcomings of past generations and other members of our respective races, end quote from the governor of South Dakota. And what I find interesting and in what you've just unpacked is that exactly what the governor said is what was not happening. For mm -hmm. college students, and I won't say all of them, I'm saying just in general from what you've described, of college students sitting in your classroom, what the governor described wasn't occurring. Well, it, it's interesting because what I've realized is that it depends on your lens. So I remember listening to an interview with Nicole um, Hannah-Jones where she talked about um, how in a lot of these conversations, the word white is left unsaid. It's, it's there. Yeah. But that's what the governor means. The governor does not mean that all Americans deserve this recognition. What the mm. governor means, in short, in summary, is we don't want white kids to feel bad about what their grandpappies did. That's essentially what that statement boils down to. Because, um, you know, one uh, interview that I did uh, in the state, I asked clearly, I was like, look, this isn't, she says that this is divisive, that this is going to cause harm, that it's making white kids feel bad about things that they are not responsible for, that they did not control, um, and that, um, that, that they shouldn't be made to sort of relive things that are out of their sort of purvey. And I'm like, well, what about the other kids that aren't white, though? Like, mm -hmm. what about the African-American kids in the state or the Native American kids in the state, Asian-American, Latino mixed kids of all backgrounds and, and ancestries, immigrant kids, like why don't they get the same level of comfort of understanding? Now, it would be different if you were teaching a whole history and saying, hey, here are all the things that happened, let's talk about it. But when you want to teach only one group's version of the history, mm -hmm. um, pretending that we don't know that the rest of the stuff happened, <laughs> mm -hmm. then that's where you actually create more division than anything else because these teachers are going into classrooms when they graduate and they are reproducing harm. And the worst part is they don't mean to, right? Yeah. They are genuinely trying to be good teachers. They're generally trying to show love. But the best example I have is I had a student in my class who was born and raised in South Dakota. She was a person of color adopted by a white family. So um, she was still coming to terms with understanding what it meant to be because she had never even considered herself as a person of color before she like was the end of high school, right? She knew that people made fun of her. She knew that she was different, but she still grew up with this sense of, you know, she's fair skinned, like she could sort of blend in. She was smart, like she sort of fit all the, the stereotypes and tropes. So she felt okay in that space, yeah. right? Checking all the um, boxes that uh, allow for easier assimilation. Right. Um, and she made a comment in one of her reflections, uh, you know, when she said that, um, she was always taught that natives were, were thieves and that, that, you know, that they would steal stuff. Even when she was a kid in school, you knew that, the, you knew quote unquote air quotes because it's a podcast that the native kids would be the ones to steal stuff in class. And because I had asked them intentionally, because when I talk about crafting curriculum, I'm talking about with intention, right? So I had asked early in the semester, what are some biases you've heard 
or seen or said. Like, I'm not going to ask you which of the, even if you said it, you're not going to ask. But so I had them sort of put all these biases that they'd heard of on sticky notes so that we could unpack those throughout the semester. And when we got to that week, we happened to be studying Native American um, boarding schools and so the history, the survivance and legacy and, and culture and history of Native American communities that particular week was the same week that she was doing her um, field studies. So she was in schools that week sort of observing and sort of watching, helping out for just one week, a few hours. And she said she was in the classroom, a third grade classroom, and someone had dropped a jacket on the ground because third graders do that occasionally. And she asked the class, whose jacket is this? And she said, a native kid um, said, that's mine. And her reflection, she learned that her very first reaction in her head was, oh, that's not yours. Whose jacket are you trying to steal? But because of the content we were going through and the sort of the, the way that I sort of pushed them through that sort of thinking process, she was able to write all that out and really reflect on, oh my gosh, was that really the first thought that came to my head? These are like little kids, right? But it was really important to her that she recognized it, that it was, that it was something that she saw. Now, I can't make her not ever do that again. But I can at least give her the tools so that when she encounters that, that she sees it, that she can recognize the inequality there, she can recognize the injustice, and then it's on her to do something about it. The other piece of that is recognizing her own implicit bias, that mm -hmm. she had a safe space to share with you in her reflection, I recognize my own biases relative to this people group, and now what do I do with it? And I, I wonder about that um, and your perspective on that. When, when we, do we have those spaces where we can do something like this? Like in the absence of Dianis Conrad teaching a course and saying, hey, give me your personal reflection and someone saying, oh, now I have a safe space to tell somebody I see my own biases. Where, how do we get there? How do we, how do we arrive at that place where we're like, wait a minute, I see something going on. Who can I talk to about this? Who is in my circle that I can, quote, confess this to, to really be able to unpack what's going on with me? See, that's the problem right there, is that people turn to their circle. Mm. But unfortunately, sociology shows us that our circles are mirrors of ourself in many cases. So wow. when you're going to your circle um, to really unpack these deep biases, it's a pretty good chance that your circle shares those biases. So you know, you're not going to get the really sort of in-depth, um, you know, unless you actively seek out someone, you know, um, who is outside within your circle, but sort of outside of your way of thinking. Mm -hmm. um, I am lucky enough that my circles are vastly diverse and I interact with people who are, who have very different perspective, perspectives and perceptions than I do. So when I am trying to understand the other side or trying to figure out how do I reach someone who is all the way over here, I can reach out to people and say, hey, I need to talk to you about this. I want to see where people who share that thought process come from. But I think for many people, they surround themselves with, it's like preaching to the choir, right? Mm -hmm. You surround yourself with mm -hmm. people who share your ideas and your views. So it's very hard for people to go and find that. I think we are lucky now in 2022 that we have spaces, digital spaces, um, non-local networking opportunities where you can seek that out. So you can go to professional conferences within your special field or within your whatever it is you're doing and sort of seek out people who 
are like-minded in those ways. You can reach out online, Facebook groups are, are prevalent. There is no shortage if the intention is there. Mm-hmm. You can always find the time and the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I have learned so much in the last few years simply by reaching out and asking people questions and listening, right? Listening to their responses and really thinking deeply, not just sort of going, but no, you know, like that instinctive reaction, you go, but no, 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 no. But actually going, okay, I absolutely 100% disagree with you, but I'm going to go sit with this for a, a week or so and think about it and really sort of think about, you know, where we can where we can learn. So I do believe in reaching across to the other side, but I do not believe that um, I will not, I still the same way, will not tolerate hate or, or um, hateful instances, words, et cetera, because, but those are things we need to unpack though. So I think it's about how you create the space. There's lots of professors um, and teachers across the country who are doing this, but usually doing this um, individually. Uh, what we need to see more of uh, is a systemic approach to these things coming at all levels. At the teacher education level, we need to do much better jobs. And it's, it's most teacher education programs have a professor or a couple of professors that do this. But my question is, if this is not a unified vision, then you're basically just having those professors spinning in circles, spinning their tires in mud, right? Because if every person does not buy into this, then you're not being effective at your curriculum in terms of what what message are you getting out? So an effective teacher education curriculum is one that has, again, backward design. You have a message and a goal. This is our vision. And when teachers leave our program, these are the things that we expect them to be good at. Mm -hmm. And then you backtrack. So every single class in that program should address those issues. Every single class should address our students uh, competent in terms of working with people who aren't like them, who, who have different ways of thinking or who look different or who sound different or who whatever. You know, so all those are pieces. So if a teacher education program is not looking at it holistically, if they have a class that addresses something like a diversity class or just one thing and you don't have other professors teaching other content who are also incorporating that information throughout, then the program is part of the problem. Um, and then you have the, the you have individual teachers and curriculum directors who also need to value this stuff, right? We need to hire people who value our students. And unfortunately, many of our educational systems right now are hiring warm bodies because we have such a shortage of teachers out in the field. But it's like the chicken and the egg. So we can't hire good teachers because we don't value our teachers. So we have teachers who are just born by the, I think the state of Florida now is hiring anyone with a veterans, who is a veteran um, with no teaching experience or teaching degree. So you can, as long as you are a veteran, they will give you an emergency license to teach. Um, they, will, they will be giving in, in the state of Florida with no teaching experience. Um, so I've been following teachers who are saying, hey, they have, I think they have to have 16 hours of classroom observation before they can get the job. And you know, she has students in her classroom asking, these people will be teachers in three weeks. And they're saying, so what's pedagogy? So like, you know, like what are the, you know, so you know, when, we're, when, we're, when we devalue the profession that much, mm-hmm. then we're not really putting into it. You know, it's like a computer program. You get out of it what you put into it. Mm-hmm. So if you're putting into it teachers who don't have the background and the skills and the pedagogy to be effective, then you have a lot of what we have now where teachers go, okay, I want to teach about the moon and the planets. So my only 
effort is going online to see what lesson plans I can print out. Um, that's not teaching. Now, I have done that myself in a pinch because sometimes other people have already had good ideas and you don't need to reinvent the wheel. But you still need to be able to think through who are my students? What do they need? How am I framing this thing? Um, because if I went into South Dakota and taught my courses the way that I taught them in Virginia, it, it wouldn't work. Yeah. Because I have different students. They come yes. from different places. They have different understandings. They need different things. So um, when we devalue the profession, we take away that critical skill which is mm -hmm. so important to good teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and then it becomes the cycle where we can. So there's a part of me that believes that it, it has to, at the very beginning, it has to be top down. I, I hate to say that because I really am a fan. I, I, I much prefer grassroots efforts. Um, yeah. I don't believe in top down rules because I think in the US we tend to have these very sort of blanket rules that, don't have flexibility in any way, um, which that's what education is all about, flexibility and being able to think on your feet. So I think, unfortunately, because we have such a high level of miseducation in the country, um, we have teachers whose teachers taught them the wrong things, whose teachers taught them the wrong things, whose teachers taught them the wrong things. So it's like, you know, we have these generations of miseducation um, and resistance now to actual historical fact. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that we can rely on individuals to get this done on a mass level. Mm -hmm. um, I think that what ends up happening is that teachers go into this at both the higher education and, and K through 12 levels with fire and with drive and they burn out and they burn out hard. Um, and they either go into the private sector um, or they just leave the field entirely. Um, and we are, if I go into school like even at Randolph-Macon, I have never, I, I, mean, I, I haven't even started the job yet. I love the people I've met so far, but I know that part of the reason I'm there is to fill a gap. But me filling the gap doesn't mean that I'm going to teach my courses in isolation. That means that I will be asking questions. I will be looking at administration. I will be looking at other colleagues. I'll be looking at other programs and saying, where are we missing the ball here? And it's not my job to go to the administration and tell them, hey, by the way, we're missing the ball here. But at the same point, I would be remiss in my duties if I see education as just what happens in my classroom and not beyond that bubble. So there are so many things you have said in the last few minutes that are, um, in my mind, is like five minutes behind because I'm thinking about um, what you're talking about in terms of pedagogy and the top-down approach versus the versus, versus grassroots and how those two things can work in tandem, right? Mm -hmm. If we're pushing from the top and we're pushing from the bottom and we meet in the middle, um, then we have a greater opportunity of being able to do, I think, some of the things that you're talking about where it's not in isolation. It's not a single professor speaking about diversity. It's not a single professor speaking about um, race and social justice. We're, we're moving together in tandem to address some of these topics. Um, so you, you mentioned being at Randolph-Macon. So what was it about that opportunity that made you say yes? What, what was the shift to say, you know what, I'm going to pick up my family and I'm going to leave South Dakota and I'm going to go all the way to the Southeast? It was a very, um, very difficult decision for me that I still struggle with in some ways because I did love the town that I lived in. I loved the colleagues that I had, people that the, the friendships and relationships I had built. 
and I am uh, very, very sad. Even the colleagues I had in my department, I am so sad that I that I am not working with some of them on a daily basis. Um, I work with some really good people and, and some people that I value. Um, but at the time, I think I I started to look. It was you know around the time of COVID. You know everything. Everybody's like sort of reevaluating life's life's goals and values, and I realized that I was giving everything I had to the institution and not leaving anything for myself or for my child. Mm. Um, and at first I, I sort of decided I was just going to bite the bullet, right? I, I, I was going to tough it out because um, there's this adage a couple of years ago at AERA in New York, um, a mentor um, for like, I did a mentorship program for early faculty or the career faculty in, in critical social justice. And someone made the comment that um, in our field, critical social justice, you will either go someplace where you are needed or where you are valued. But very rarely will you find a place where you are both. Mm. Sort of the, the, the unicorn in the, in the room, sort of say. So I knew that my work was needed at South Dakota because of the experiences I'd had with my students. And I was willing to tough it out, even though I felt my work was not valued. Um, and it was valued at an accreditation level. It was valued at an interpersonal level, but systemically within the institution, it was not valued. Um, you, for, for, for that kind of work, for DEI work to be valued, it means that at every level of process, administration, um, everything from the custodians to, to the provost council, must be invested in this vision. And everything that we do should be included, that should be included in part of that vision. So I did not, I, I, I felt, I knew going into it that my work wasn't gonna be valued in that way, but I figured that I could still use that ripple effect within my classroom to create the change, all, albeit slowly, um, that I was hoping to generate um, among you know, teacher education students. But over the course of COVID, I was uh, working, <clears throat> teaching, uh, far more than I felt was just, um, but also um, homeschooling a first grader and my body just started to fail. And I had to reevaluate my priorities. Um, my health declined, there were physical manifestations of, of stress. I was sleeping four hours a night um, just to keep up with my work and um, my body failed. And, and just couldn't do it anymore. And I realized that I was swimming upstream with the effort. So my D, I was putting all of this effort. I was on every DEI committee doing all these things, planning panels and all the things and doing all the things. And um, I was swimming upstream. And there were, none of the things that I was doing was having any impact. And um, not only was academically, my work wasn't having the impact I wanted, but also personally, because I was spending so much time trying to create this impact in this unwelcoming space, um, I wasn't able to be physically and emotionally present with my child the way that I wanted. So not only I felt I was failing as, a, as an academic, but I was also failing as a mother. Um, it made me really sort of think hard about what it is that I wanted to do with the work that I was doing and sort of thinking about you know, where was I going to make the most meaningful change? Life is short. I'm in my 40s. Like, I've only got so much time um, to play with. So where can I make change in the most impactful and meaningful way? And um, I decided that I wanted to be in a place where my work had space to grow. 
So I, I couldn't sacrifice my work and my health and my child um, in a space where there was no light at the end of the tunnel, where this was going to be. And I think when I got to the point, I was appointed at, as a champion for diversity for the strategic plan for the university. And I was like, okay, well, then we're going to make some good meetings. Okay, it doesn't matter. Like, here we are, we can do this. Like, we're going we're gonna to build value, even if there's none here yet. And then less than six months later, you know, we got the notice um, from our board of regents saying that we had to sort of remove diversity and equity from our strategic plan because it was uh, divisive. And that's when I realized that my work would not have the space to grow there, um, not without major impacts on my physical well-being, um, my, psych my, my psychological well-being, the well-being of my child. And um, I decided to be sort of intentional. So I didn't, I wasn't running from USD. I, I loved my job. I love people I work with. So I wasn't trying to escape. Um, so I wasn't just sort of, you know, sometimes when you need a job, you sort of run through the listings and you're just like, I'll apply to everything that's sort of in my field. Like I wasn't in that space. Like I, I really enjoyed what I was doing where I was, but I, you know, you get the emails with the job postings and I would, I would skim through them every once in a while. I'd be like, nah, I'm going to pretend you're not going to worry about all that. Like, it's just not worth it. But then I think with my, that, 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 that sort of peaked around COVID and um, just a I think I applied for two positions the whole year because those are the two that made me think I'm not, I'm not running away from a job, but if I find a position that really speaks to the work that I want to do and who I am as a human and as an academic, and, and both those pieces are, are critical to me. So an institution who saw me as more than just an academic cog in, in an institutional wheel, um, that I would consider it. And that I wasn't going into any interviews looking for a job but just looking to see what was there. And that if something really spoke to me where I felt that I could have more of an impact, then I would consider it. So um, it just so happened that Randolph-Macon um, issued a job post, uh, a job uh, in, in language that spoke to me. They used very intentional vocabulary um, that you do not see in public documents. Um, things like anti-racist pedagogy, unpacking historical, um, challenges, like sort of looking at their own historical in inequities and, and trying to do better and sort of trying to bring in fresh blood to, to take a look because they had sort of exhausted where the, the, the sort of expertise on campus already. And um, I, I was honest, I, I said, well, you know, I've, I've never actually heard anybody say that outside of private, you know, private institutional documents before, like you put that out there on public, like that's just mm -hmm. asking for trouble in, in this particular. So it, it made me sort of curious to see what their vibe was all about. Um, and when I, when I met with them, I felt that the vibe was genuine. I felt that they were genuinely invested in my work in improving not only their, the, 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 the diversity, equity and inclusion on their campus, but also having that ripple effect within the people that leave their campus. Um, and it, I felt that they, that they were at, at further along in their journey um, on this path and that my impact, my, my work could have a more immediate and more um, tangible impact in that space. So I was sort of very intentional about it. Um, but uh, I, again, I, I sort of feel that I feel this, this sadness because I felt that there's a part of me that did want to sort of stick it through and, and commit because I felt that those teachers, those teachers especially that I was meeting, um, really needed that, but I, I recognize the importance of valuing myself as well, and I yes. hadn't been doing that before. Yes, and that's um, 
I think that's such a powerful perspective. I heard you say multiple times, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tough it out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tough this out. I'm gonna stick with this. I'm gonna push through this. Um, and I think that happens a lot, um, certainly for women, um, but it happens a lot uh, for women of color where we, we are gonna stay in something, especially when we know it's needed. And so we will sacrifice ourselves as you described. Um, and it's not until we are Atlas shrugged that we're like, you know what? I am down on my knee right now. I, I'm gonna have to make a decision. I can either continue to tough it out and give and give and give and wonder, am I really having the impact and the lift that I desire? Or do I need to make a different decision? And so I applaud you for, for hitting the point where you're like, I gotta make a different decision, but I'm gonna make an intentional different decision. Yeah. And it's hard when you have colleagues who are co-conspirators and allies who are working with you because there was that sense of, oh my gosh, I'm abandoning them. This is yeah. when you really need to tough it out. Um, but before I made any major decisions, I, I, I spoke with uh, many of the colleagues. Like when I took my position, I spoke to them individually before I even told my dean, before, that I, before I made it public, I went to those people and I said, hey, I need to let you know that this is what's happening. Um, and this is what I'm considering. This is what I, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and I have pledged to all of them that one of the things I realized by taking this position at Randolph Macon is it gives me a ridiculous amount of privilege. In that I am no longer under contract by the Board of Regents of the State of South Dakota. Well, actually, um, in 12 days. <laughs> um, I am it's no the countdown, longer, right? I'm no longer under under. Um, contract so it gives me the space to speak out um and i told each of them if you need me to say something you can't say you have my email you have my phone number call me i um i'm still i've, I've still been reaching out um to different uh parts of the state. I still plan to work with student groups in the fall um, in South Dakota to, to address legislation. I'm not leaving the fight in the state. Mm -hmm. I'm leaving the institution. Mm -hmm. So for me, my fight in South Dakota has not ended. Yeah. That fight, that fight continues. And I have much more privilege now being outside the state that I can be even louder than I was before. Because there's this hovering of, you know, you have, you're on contract, you have certain things you have to do as an employee of the state. Um, and I don't have to do those things anymore. So yeah. um, I think it's, it's very important to me that I found a place where I can still do that work in South Dakota. I still have teachers who are starting teaching jobs this, um, who are still talking to me this summer, who are still asking, how do I make sure my classroom is inclusive? I'm still working with teachers in the state with other colleagues, with legislators, with student groups. So um, that was a way that I found to feel like I was not giving up on my colleagues. I was not leaving them behind. I was not giving up on the, all the work I had put in the last six years, but I was giving myself the freedom to do that work in a much more effective way. And that I think is a beautiful legacy to leave behind. Um, I thank you so much for all that you have shared today with the ACY uh, community and all of our members. This has been an amazing conversation. We need to do a part two because there's so many things that you touched on um, that we just don't have time to get to. And this conversation 
but I would like to ask you to come back and do another um, talk with us because this has truly been amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate and I love the fact that um, your organization is is giving space to these conversations and that you um, are are present that says a lot about the ACUI and sort of their commitment and how they are building um, towards greater commitment in these areas. So thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely.